Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at how the Supreme Court stripped abortion rights for half the country, what life will look like for those seeking abortions, and what we can do, both personally and politically, to fight back. Clips today are from Burn It All Down, There Are No Girls on the Internet, Boom Lawyered, This Is Hell, Democracy Now!, Amicus, and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, with an additional members-only clip from Legal Eagle. What should someone do right now if they want or need an abortion? Like, are there, what are, what are the recommendations at this point? At this point, there are a lot of websites that people can access to try to get as up-to-date as possible information. So I need an A is one of them. Needabortion.org is one that we host with the Little Fund that we're currently updating to be as accurate as possible. Um, abortion Finder is another one. And those should have as up-to-date information as possible, um, basically dependent on us and how quickly we can gather it and update it. Um, so we're working on that right now. They can still contact the National Network of Abortion Funds to talk to abortion funds who can help provide financial services and financial assistance for people needing to pay for their procedure. And they can also be connected to practical support funds across the country to get access to funding for like logistical needs. So travel accommodations. Currently in Texas, a lot of the funds are kind of taking a pause while they figure out what exactly the laws mean in regard to their work. But there are funds across the country that will pay for Texans to access the care. For example, some Colorado funds, um, the National Abortion Federation Fund will pay for people from Texas. So it's still possible. It's just it's kind of an upheaval right now, the information, and we're trying to update it as fast as possible. Man, my heart goes out to people who are in this moment trying to seek this care. I just, it, uh, it just breaks my heart. Um, what can our listeners do who want to support people in the reproductive health field and the reproductive justice movement at large in this moment? I've heard all kinds of things, certainly. I assume you're going to tell us to donate. I mean, how important is it to get out into the streets and protest? Like what, what should people, what makes the most sense for their energy right now? Where should they direct it? I guess. Sure. So I have a lot of ideas. Okay. Awesome. I think first and foremost, talking about abortion within your communities, using the word abortion, talking about why you support it, kind of normalizing and humanizing the fact that abortion is necessary healthcare that anyone should be able to access within their communities is such an easy lift, but sometimes is difficult for people. Um, we have a resource at Avow called Let's Talk About Abortion. We've got a little toolkit and we can also do trainings, but it helps people get comfortable talking about abortion. Because I think one of the things that has led to the situation is the stigma surrounding abortion care despite the fact that the majority of Americans and the majority of Texans support care, it's still so highly stigmatized. Like sometimes we even have a hard time convincing candidates to say the word abortion because there's just so much stigma. So that's one of the easiest lifts I think to ask of people is just to talk about why you support abortion care. Um, the second thing would be to like donate or volunteer for organizations at the local or state level um, that includes abortion funds, that includes abortion clinics. Um, if you have the means donating to abortion funds, donating to independent clinics, there's a great organization called Abortion Care Network. That is basically a network of all the independent clinics. And while many people think that Planned Parenthood provides the majority of the abortions, that's not actually not the case. It's small, independent abortion providers with not a lot of revenue that provide the care. So donating to them is really helpful. There's a website called Keep Our Clinics, which will disseminate the money to independent abortion clinics. Donating to abortion funds, you can do it through your local abortion funds or the National Network of Abortion Funds. Those are the organizations that try to fill the gap financially for people accessing the care. Then I want people to get involved politically. I think that it is imperative that we demand of our candidates running for office and any elected official that they are unapologetic abortion advocates. Because I think that abortion gets thrown under the bus, you know, session after session, election cycle after election cycle. And 
we know that like the majority support abortion care and they can't throw it under the bus. And that when we did like, you know, abortion rights are decimated at the Supreme Court level, a lot of other human rights are going to follow. So like we need to demand of candidates running, of people already elected, like what are you going to do to secure my rights? And like, like prove it, do it. And we need to hold them accountable. So one of the things we do at Avow is we work on the political side and we try to elect champions. And, you know, it's hard, <laughs> but uh, it's really important. Voting getting out the vote, taking people to go vote. Um, those are other things that I would suggest doing. You can get an abortion in a lot of the, a lot of the cases where women need them. You can do it with medication. You can do it safely. That is easily accessible online. Like you can go online, you can buy it and they will send it to your house. No problem right? No matter what state you're in, they'll ship it to you from another country, you can get it. And so then the concern becomes, well, how are they going to track this? And like, we all know to be worried about that now, but not exactly how it's working. But how do you balance making sure that the tips that you give are actually going to be accessible for the folks who need them? Yeah, you know, so there is there is a nearly perfect way that you could buy abortion medication and not be tracked. You take a whole bunch of cash, you go buy a burner phone, you use it on public Wi-Fi, you use the Tor browser, you use cash to buy gift cards that you use to pay for the medication, you have it shipped to, this is kind of the big question mark, someplace that's not you and pick it up from there. And there's no digital trace of you. So great. One, that's super hard. Two, it's very expensive, right? That's not accessible. I mean, if I, I think like if I were like 17, and needed an abortion and didn't want to tell my parents about it, right? I mean, I think that's part of the audience I'm reaching on TikTok. They're not going to use a bunch of cash to go buy a burner phone and use public and like all use the Tor browser, right? Like that's not what they're going to do. So I like to give, you know, solutions. What's going to get you 50% more protection? Like delete that search history. It's going to help. Is it perfect? No. But if you do that, and, you know, you use a gift card to buy it and you don't take your phone if you're going to like Planned Parenthood so you can't get tracked. Like we know people are tracking that. Like these are all really simple steps that anybody can do. They don't cost you a lot of money. It's just kind of changing your habits and, and being aware. And I think having that, like one, people are more likely to do it. It's accessible to more people and it's going to give a good amount of protection, even if it's not perfect. Nobody like the perfect solution's stupid and hard and nobody wants it. Yeah. You know, otherwise, we'd be doing it already with everything. In the wake of the Supreme Court striking down Roe, I heard lots of well-meaning people say things like, well, don't worry, because we've been here before. But that's not actually true, because the last time abortion was illegal in the United States, in the days before Roe became the law of the land in 1973, we did not have the vast infrastructure of digital surveillance, tracking, and data sharing and selling like we do now. We didn't all carry GPS devices in our pockets. We did not all create digital paper trails of all the information we've ever accessed. And we certainly didn't have companies selling and sharing that information with third parties, including law enforcement. We did not create digital logs of the most sensitive information about our bodies, like our periods, onto apps who then go on to share it with God knows who. For instance, the popular period tracking app Flow faced a lawsuit last year for sharing people's personal information, including, quote, intimate details about sexual health and menstrual cycles with third parties like Facebook and Google, despite public assurances that it would not. And they did this because data is, quote, vital to their business, according to the lawsuit. Add in laws like SB8 in Texas that deputize ordinary citizens to turn in anyone they suspect of having an abortion or aiding and abetting an abortion for a $10,000 reward, and you can start to see the scope of the situation that we're currently facing. Maybe this is too black and white of a question, but would you say that people in the wake of Roe v. Wade being struck down, should folks be thinking about deleting period tracker apps? Should they be like, is that, is that too like black and white or simplistic of a way to even be framing it? Or what do you think? If I were in a kind of rural, really Bible belty, anti-abortion place, and I'm a younger woman without a lot of financial resources, so I couldn't travel by myself to a state that could do an abortion for me. Maybe I'm too young. I don't have the money for it. My parents would catch me, that kind of thing. And you know that people around you 
are really excited about bounty hunting people who get abortions, then yeah, like maybe start tracking that on paper like I did in high school, right? I had little <laughs> red dots in my planner. Yeah, you know, I don't think it's going to be the main place people go to. You always can lie, right? Like, oh, yes, I did have my period last month. And you just find however many days and you plunk it in there and you've got a record that, that makes it look like you weren't pregnant, even if you were. But, you know, if you're worried about people like checking in on that, right? Somebody gets a hold of your phone. Are they going to go look at it to see when you had your last period? I don't think it's a bad idea. And look, generally, I think everyone should be wary about logging any kind of personal information like this in any app, even if there's not a law (laughs) that would get in the way of your healthcare, because it's almost always going to be monetized and sold to advertisers. We know, for example, that there's anti-abortion groups that were setting up geofenced advertising. So basically, you can draw a little map and say, anytime anybody walks into this space, I want to start sending them ads. And they would draw it in a one block radius around Planned Parenthoods or abortion providers. And then if you crossed into that space, you would start being targeted for months with anti-abortion advertising. We know that they're doing that. And they can collect data from our phones if we engage with any of that content. And so your privacy or anonymity goes away. So as you think about the convenience that you get, from bringing your phone to your doctor's office, a thing you should totally be able to do, you want to think about if you should. That said, the onus should not be on individuals for this, right? It's a thing that should make us push really hard for better privacy protections. They have it in Europe, right? None of this stuff would be legal in Europe in the way that it is here. They have it in California to a certain extent. We really need much better federal privacy laws, and and that will resolve a lot of these issues. And it's a thing that people should be pushing for. The Electronic Frontier Foundation is a great place to go look. Um, It's EFF.org. They have a whole legislative section, so you can see on the local, state, federal level what legislation is being in place and like write some letters if you care about it. So, you know, you've mentioned a couple of like really great tips for folks if you're if you're looking for uh, abortion pills and you want to do it, you know, in a way that you're going to be less likely to be tracked, you know, using a Tor browser, using incognito mode when you search, using public Wi-Fi. Are there other tips that you want to shout out for folks if you if they if they might need this information? So so that's all important stuff. I would say for sure the most important one is that you are not paying with a credit card or a debit card connected to your name. So figure out how much your medication is going to cost. Use cash, buy like a Visa vanilla gift card, which you can get anywhere for that amount, and then pay with the Visa vanilla gift card. So much of how we're tracked is through credit card number. So definitely do that. And the other way that we're really easily tracked is through email address. So set up a fresh email address that you are only using to buy this abortion medication. Proton Mail is the one site that I've recommended for this. It's free. It's encrypted. It's really good and secure. You can just set up an email address, use it to buy your medicine. Don't use it for anything else. If you do that, gift card, fresh email address um, on something like Proton Mail, you know, I love Gmail. I use it, right? But they track the hell out of you on Gmail. So Proton Mail email address, vanilla gift card, you get 80% of the protection from tracking just from those two measures. So, you know, that's easy and accessible to anybody. Definitely do that. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look, if all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, 
and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash left. You can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash bestoftheleft. What we didn't get was the coward's compromise that we were all braced for, right? The gaslighting decision that said, we're going to uphold a Mississippi 15-week ban, but not call it overruling Roe versus Wade. No, what we got was basically a word-for-word verbatim of the Alito leaked memo from last month, explicitly overruling Roe versus Wade, explicitly overruling Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and it's got to tell. Because it doesn't even say we're explicitly ruling, overruling these cases to send it back to the states. It says we're explicitly overruling these cases to send the issue back to the electeds in Congress in the states. So for everybody who is out there immediately saying abortions protected in X, Y, and Z places, it is for right now. But what I want to make very clear at the start of this podcast is even before they got to the nuts and bolts of the analysis, right, in the table of freaking contents, Alito shows the full hand. This isn't sending abortion back to the states. It's the first time in this country's history that an unelected majority of Supreme Court justices have taken away a fundamental constitutional right. And what's disturbing about the fact that they did so is the way in which they completely discounted the importance and the significance of that right. It's almost as, it's almost as if they they either don't have an understanding or probably more accurately, they just don't care what they don't care. pregnancy does to a person, what it does to mm-hmm. their body, what it does to their lives, what it means for their futures. And, you know, I, I was chatting with Mark, our producer, before we started uh, recording the podcast about the fact that, you know, I've been in the court for a lot of oral arguments, so much so that I am haunted by the fact that I have auditory recall of Sam Alito's voice on my own. Like, I can close my eyes and I can hear his voice from sitting through oral arguments where he's asking questions. And so I can hear him reading this opinion. And let me tell you, it's mean. Mm -hmm. This is a mean spirited opinion that doesn't just disregard the law, that doesn't just disregard the very real health risks that continuing a pregnancy can cause people, that just doesn't disregard the constitutional interests at stake here to uphold president, that doesn't just disregard the will of the people who believe that abortion should be legal. It does it in a way that also somehow gives us the middle finger through the whole thing. And I can walk through a couple points, right? So first of all, did you know that The decisions in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey were as egregiously and wrongly decided and as thinly resourced in terms of analysis as Plessy versus Ferguson. Did you know that, Amani? I mean, obviously. I mean, that, that just seems like it makes sense to me. Or at least it does if you're someone like Sam Alito. I mean... I've been yelling about this connection between abortion and slavery pretty much since the day I started working at Rewired News Group. It was one of my very first articles I wrote in 2013 or something like that. It said, stop comparing abortion to slavery. And the reason why it makes me so angry is because I don't think white people, at least the majority of white people in this country, either don't have an understanding or haven't bothered to learn or don't care what slavery was like for black women. Like it was like nightmare doesn't even describe it. I cannot watch movies about slavery because I am so traumatized by what I see on screen that I'm unable to watch it. Right. So, so listening to these people compare abortion to slavery when women who were enslaved had to murder their own children 
so that they wouldn't become property of white people, property of the state. Women who had to watch their children stand on auction blocks and be sold away to plantations, far-flung plantations where they would never see them again. So for that, for, so for Sam Alito or any of these, these Federalist Society captured judges to compare abortion to slavery is just, it's disgusting. It strips black women of our agency. It ignores the horror show that this country inflicted on black women and continues to inflict, continues to inflict on black women, particularly black women in Mississippi, for example, where the, where the, where it's 75 times less safe to give birth than it is to have an abortion, right? Having an abortion in Mississippi is going to kill you if you're a black woman, essentially. Yeah. And so how can we continue to have these conversations with these, with these white people who don't give a shit about me, who don't give a shit mm-hmm. about us, but who have been spending decades passing abortion laws on our backs and then calling us participators in a genocide of our own people and comparing, you know, Roe versus Wade, which gave women, black women, black pregnant people, autonomy, comparing that to a time period when we were raped and brutalized so that we could continue to produce children that would spark the engine of this economy, of the global economy, quite frankly. I just, Mm -hmm. I can't do it. (laughs) Like, I can't do it. Oh, I mean, but what, like, first of all, thank you for all of that, because I mean, people need to hear that this is, this is real. And What Sam Alito and the majority do by starting off with that comparison is to just show how bad faith the rest of this opinion is going to be. To your point exactly, they don't care about mothers, by the way, who are the majority of people who have abortions in this country, right? This is the the, the pro-life family party there. They don't care about that. And of course, you know, just yesterday, the New York guns case came out and let's see how that works out for black mothers across this country as well. Right. Like it is all a big flaming pile of crap. He's also just a really bad writer. So to hear and read this mean decision that disregards the humanity of people let alone the constitutional issues. And he's just gleeful about it. He gets off on it. He yeah. enjoys the misery that he knows this opinion will inflict. And it is also, let's be very clear about it, the beginning of the end of our right to privacy rights as we know them in this country. They are not shy about it. Sam Alito is gleeful about it. We are, we are really in a dark place. I want to read a little excerpt from your article at Substack to start off. Uh, You write that the Supreme Court's disastrous abortion decision is going to affect many, many women. White, cis, hat, middle-class women like me, like yourself, and our children, very much included. But we are still free from some of the most nightmarish intersections constituted by racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia, together with gender. You then quote a past guest on our show, the legal theorist Kimberly Crenshaw, writing in a 1989 paper on this nightmarish intersection, suggesting that we think of a traffic intersection. She wrote, the point is that black women can experience discrimination in any number of ways. Consider an analogy to traffic in an intersection coming and going in all four directions. Discrimination like traffic through an intersection may flow in one direction and it may flow in another. If an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions and sometimes from all of them. So you also add similarly, if a black woman is uh, harmed, her injury could result from sex discrimination, race discrimination, or a combination of the two, as in the phenomenon of misogynoir. More broadly, the intersections between gender and other oppressive systems work against pregnant people of color in general and black and indigenous ones, as well as poor folks in particular. It's worth remembering this as some are becoming uh, or bemoaning a return to the pre-Roe era and others fear an even worse future. Both of these views, while capturing something important, also miss another vital fact to bear in mind here. Criminalizing pregnancy has long been a reality for the most marginalized pregnant people in this country. How is overturning Roe criminalizing pregnancy generally? And how, prior to overturning Roe, 
were the most marginalized, already criminalized with their pregnancies? Mm, That's a great question. So here I'm relying on some really wonderful work on a grim topic by the legal scholars and advocates, Lynn Paltrow and Gian Flavin. So what they've done is developed this concept of reproductive oppression, and they're theorizing cases where pregnancy was a necessary condition for someone being physically restricted in their liberty by the legal system. And that can involve things like incarceration, arrests, increases in jail and prison time, but also things like being detained in hospital, mental institutions, and uh, forced into treatment programs, as well as forced medical interventions. So what these researchers found was that there is a vastly disproportionate number of women of color, especially Black women and Indigenous women, and poor women who have been subject to this form of reproductive oppression by the state, where they are you know, sometimes held captive by the state because of their pregnancy and the state's perception that they're not a quote-unquote fit mother. So we have cases of people being perceived rightly or in some cases wrongly as a drug user and that being used as a pretext for holding that there is a huge risk to the fetus. In many cases, there wasn't a huge risk, for example, for, for cocaine use that was involved in many of these cases. That's been shown not to be more risky than something that is perfectly legal in pregnancy, namely nicotine use. And yet we have poor and black women being arrested and in some cases incarcerated for years for effectively uh, perceptions that they were endangering their fetus during pregnancy. And in reality, in these cases, these people had undergone uh, tragedies like Uh, a stillbirth for a wanted pregnancy in some cases. Uh, In other cases, they had had a miscarriage. In some cases, an infection that led to miscarriage. And the result of which was a pregnant person being incarcerated or at least arrested in ways that restrained their physical liberty. So the criminalization of poor and Black pregnant bodies has been ongoing in this country for decades and decades. And the paper that you cite is from 2013 by uh, Paltrow mm-hmm. and Flavin. And we all know that from 2013 up until the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there have been uh, more state laws passed, in particular in uh, uh, Mississippi, places like Mississippi, mm-hmm. where there are more and more restrictions had been put on. So do we know were pregnancies being more criminalized during that period of time from the date of this paper in 2013 up until uh, just a few weeks ago when uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade? Was that criminalization continuing and on a trajectory that was just getting worse and worse for women of color? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, there are two things worth drawing attention to here. So, for decades and particularly since that period, since, you know, roughly 2010, I would say there has been a ramping up of restrictions on clinics that perform abortion. So that's one thing worth drawing attention to. Things like demanding that clinics have admitting privileges to hospitals, even though that's just not medically necessary. These are known to be incredibly safe procedures. Other spurious regulations like requiring that the corridors be a certain width such that you can fit two gurneys side by side in them. Again, not medically or materially necessary restrictions. And so clinics have been shut down using these kinds of pretexts even long before we had the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Casey. Um, The other thing worth really drawing attention to is you've had a rise in the weaponizing of laws against feticide and fetal homicides, against pregnant women and other pregnant persons, including, of course, trans men, non-binary people, and some intersex people who get pregnant. But these laws were originally designed to protect women and their fetuses from domestic and other forms of violence. But what has happened in some states is that they have been repurposed in order to criminalize the pregnant person themselves. So, For example, in Mike Pence's Indiana, you had two Asian American women, Abe Shwal and Pervy Patel, 
who were both the first arrested women under these fetal homicide laws and also happened to be women of colour, which is no accident. Um, So in Pervy Patel's case, which was the one to make headlines, the basic chain of events was that she had ordered pills to self-induce an abortion at 23 or 24 weeks, and that is still legal in many states to this day and was certainly protected under Roe v. Wade. 24 weeks is considered general uh, the point of viability. So she self-induced an abortion using abortifacients procured online and was ultimately sentenced via the repurposing of these laws to 20 years in prison. So an extraordinary penalty for this Asian-American woman under these punitive weaponization of Indiana's feticide laws. So she ended up serving one year and four months, and ultimately her appeal to Indiana's Supreme Court was successful. But, you know, she was still subject to these enormously draconian penalties. And I would argue that her being a woman of color in this scenario was in no way accidental. How do you think we view pregnancy differently when we understand it as something that courts can intervene in, something that where uh, pregnancy has been criminalized? How do you think we view abortion differently when we understand it as something that's already been, uh, that the actual act of being pregnant has been criminalized? Mm. Well, I think it is a pretext for the state to disproportionately target, as I said, poor women, Black women, Indigenous women, and other women who are marginalized, as well as other people who can get pregnant who are marginalized, including trans men, for example. But I also think this is a general expression of misogyny. So, as you know, in my work, I have been defining misogyny as, metaphorically, the law enforcement branch of patriarchy. So, that which serves to police and enforce patriarchal norms and expectations. And in a way, the most patriarchal norm and expectation, which also intersects with racist expectations, with classist and ableist and transphobic expectations, is that cis white women should get pregnant and have white men's babies to uphold white supremacy. And this expectation is now being very effectively enforced and policed by legal means, as well as social means, by not only the legal penalties that are going to ensue for pregnant people who obtain abortions in states where they're banned, but also for those who are perceived rightly or wrongly as aiding and abetting this now crime in many states. And it's also just worth noticing the ways in which this supports a public discourse that represents a woman's getting pregnant as something morally expected and as kind of natural and even as holy in some religious contexts. So the idea of her then obtaining an abortion is perceived not as her right, as I would argue it absolutely is, but rather as something that violates a kind of natural and moral order. So I think the way that laws are constructing and also reflecting a public discourse that moralizes someone exercising their basic right to terminate a pregnancy and not to have their body used in this way against their will, that's also something to which we should be paying attention. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and their mission is simple, to make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. And Bombas has designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes that you can't wait to put on, because everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. Plus, they've made high-tech innovations that let them craft a pair of Bombas socks for basically everything you do. They come in tons of options. For instance, 
comfy performance styles made with sweat-wicking yarns, which means your feet stay cool while the rest of you works up a sweat. And I've been wearing them for years, enjoying them on a daily basis, but the main reason I like to promote them is that from the very beginning, they've been focused on building a business that does good. They started selling socks with the buy one, donate one model specifically because socks were the most requested item at homeless shelters. T-shirts and underwear are numbers two and three on that list, and so now, of course, they've expanded accordingly. So far, Bomba's customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing, so go to bombas.com best and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot best for 20% off. Bombas.com best. The decision itself, just as we saw with the leaked draft, has many errors, omissions. It has a selective, if not opportunistic, uh, reading of American history. Uh, it does not center in all of it, its claimed originalism and all of its claimed textualism. Interestingly enough, it avoids the 13th Amendment. It even avoids the first sentence of the 14th Amendment. And here's what my New York Times piece was about. It was that when Congress abolished, through the ratification of the 13th Amendment, abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, they were not abolishing that just for black men. They very well understood that involuntary servitude for black women in the United States meant involuntary sexual assaults, rapes, and then uh, the reproduction after that as black women were forced to labor, not only in the fields, but also labor under the weight a different kind of shackling of slavery, which was sexual subordination and reproduction. This was very well known. The abolitionist in Congress who led the way for the 13th Amendment spoke and wrote about this. Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner was nearly beaten to death in the halls of Congress two days after giving a speech about the raping of black women. Sojourner Truth spoke to it. I mean, it was clear the New York Times, there were articles about it. So the very idea that there was no one thinking about involuntary servitude as being consistent with involuntary reproduction is just absurdist. It was written about everywhere. Everyone knew this as being one of the devastating effects of American slavery, and it was abolished with the 13th Amendment. And then later on with the 14th Amendment, it was still recognized that black women were psychologically, physically, and reproductively still being harmed in Southern states. Their children were being denied citizenship. Their children were being snatched and taken away from them. And the 14th Amendment was therefore then ratified. The piece goes into depth in all of these categories to give an education to the Supreme Court and to our country to remember this, because otherwise black women have been essentially erased from the Constitution. And by erasing black women from the Constitution, we ultimately erase all women from the Constitution because the 13th Amendment and 14th Amendment not only freed black women from these bondages, but it also freed white women from these bondages. None of this is given any kind of reading by the originalist and textualist on the Supreme Court who seem to ignore all of that and have now rendered us to a country where there are free states, where individuals can be free in their bodies, and also those where it is non-free. And one can't help but understand this as being so consistent with the patterns of slavery and Jim Crow in the United States. And let's talk about the trajectory right through to now. Um, uh, people of color are most affected um, by the lack of health care that will be available when abortion is outlawed in state after state. Um, can you talk about the Duke study about black maternal mortality and how much higher it is um, uh, than for uh, white people who are pregnant? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because what is also alarming in this opinion and also in the draft opinion is how it gives no regard to facts, concurrent facts. The United States ranks 55th in the world in terms of maternal mortality. It is not in league with Germany, France, its peer nations. Instead, it's in peer company with nations that still publicly lash and stone women. 
in 2016, the Supreme Court's own record showed that women were 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. Once we flash what this looks like in terms of race, then we really get a sense of the horror that's behind all of this. And again, with the Supreme Court deciding that it would pay no attention to it. So in Mississippi, we're looking at 118 times black women more likely to die 118 times by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. According to Mississippi's own data from their Department of Health, a black woman, 80% of the cardiac deaths in that state occur to black women. Black women don't make up 80% of the female population in the state, but are 80% of the cardiac deaths during pregnancy. And nationally, they're three and a half times more likely than white counterparts to die due to maternal mortality. But Amy, that's not all. If you actually look at certain counties within these anti-abortion states, then you see that black women may be five or 10 or 15 times more likely to die by being forced to carry a pregnancy to term than by being able to have the medical care of an abortion. And it's just that glaring and alarming. And what's so stunning about it is that the Supreme Court gives no consideration to this data. Katie Colbert, you argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey before the Supreme Court 30 years ago in 1992. Roe was reaffirmed in that case. This was about, what, spousal consent, men having to give women their consent for uh, an abortion? It was that and a number of other restrictions uh, in Pennsylvania law that were upheld. Uh, but I think strikingly in 92, we expected the court to do exactly what they did here. Uh, and they didn't because Justice Kennedy uh, changed his vote at the last minute. Uh, but as a result of Casey, while it preserved legal abortion in most in all states across the country, uh, it meant that many women, uh, particularly black and brown women, women who are poor, women who lived in rural areas, uh, women who were young, uh, had very, very difficult times uh, obtaining abortions because of the restrictions that it permitted. Now, unfortunately, today, as a result of this ruling, those same women will suffer much, much more uh, because their ability to obtain abortion will be totally circumscribed. It's a, it's a really uh, devastating opinion, one in which all of us need to be as angry as we can be and to channel that anger to making a difference and changing uh, what uh, the court has done uh, through the legislative process. And how do you do that? I mean, through the legislative process, now the former vice president, uh, Mike Pence, is calling for Congress, the legislative process, to pass a nationwide uh, abortion ban. And they could do that. They could do that if they take control of the House of Representatives and, uh, and the Senate, uh, with a Republican president after 2024, they could easily do that. And Mitch McConnell has said it's on the table. It's something that they will consider, which is just uh, McConnell speak for we're going to do that. Our response has to be to take to keep control of the House, to win a majority in the Senate that includes two additional senators who are willing to bypass the filibuster rule uh, and pass statutory protection for women. But the reality is that uh, states are also a, a huge impediment on this issue. As you said earlier, 26 states are expected to ban abortion within the next couple of weeks or months. Uh, that means that 40% of women of childbearing age or more will be affected. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of women who will be uh, seeking uh, abortions for their unintended pregnancies, having to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to safe states. And it, this is no way to provide health care. This is no way to uh, live in a democracy. Uh, and it's because the ultra conservative justices have taken back the Supreme Court and frankly have imposed their own ideological biases against all the rest of us. It's a it's a devastating ruling and one in which our anger uh, is appropriate and certainly uh, should be uh, heated to make sure that we can 
uh, switch this now, around. Let's talk about this moving uh, pregnant people from one state to another to have an abortion. The concerns of a number of what abortion funds like one in Texas, corporations who said they'll do this, they'll pay for this. Uh, not clear that their um, workers would want to make it known to the corporation that they were pregnant. But um, abortion funds, for example, going inactive now, right at the time where they could get a lot of money, a lot of support all over the country, because they're terrified that it means aiding and abetting. Can you clarify this? Or is the lack of clarity what will—is the plan that people will be afraid to do this, organizations will be afraid to do this, but it's not actually codified in law, the ban on that? Pen, uh, state by state. Because uh, some states, uh, like Texas, prohibit uh, aiding persons to self-manage their care. Uh, it's not clear whether it, it uh, also would prohibit uh, women from traveling and, and aiding the travel. Uh, but the, the point is, you're absolutely right, Amy, is, is the vagueness uh, really scares people from taking action. And let's remember there's like three things that are likely to happen. Um, first, it's women who could travel. And frankly, it is women with means who are most likely to travel, uh, women who have the resources to be able to get on a plane or to, to drive 250 miles. Um, other women uh, will self-manage their abortion by taking abortion pills. Uh, and they will get them in a variety of ways, either through the Internet or through prescriptions from foreign countries and, you know, uh, mailing them from from India or other pharmacies or going to Mexico or going to Canada or, frankly, going to their friend who lives in Missouri and and asking them or I mean, not Missouri, but uh, uh, going to California for, to their friend and asking for the pills there. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to self-manage your care. But the problem, and I think Michelle can talk about this even uh, more graphically than I, is that many of those women will subject themselves to the potential of criminal prosecution, either for self-managing their care and getting the drugs illegally, or uh, the people who are aiding or helping her uh, to get information and to get uh, the appropriate care. I, you know, I think that we need to stand up and say, this is not all right. Uh, make lots and lots of noise, a real, you know, make sure that these prosecutors who are uh, adamantly opposed to abortion are, are taken out of office and, and uh, defeated at the next election. Uh, and, you know, all of this will take time and will take effort and will take um, uh, many, many millions of Americans standing up for our liberties. It's possible. We have to start now. that we can say for certain about the pre-Roe era is that more likely than not, the person who was targeted in jurisdictions where abortion was prohibited was the physician. We're in a different world now, right, where it can be somebody who puts medication abortion pills in the mail. It can be somebody who, you know, uh, the famous case from SB8 is the Uber driver who takes somebody to a clinic or somebody who does something across state lines. So I think one of the things that I see as materially different in Dobbs that maybe we haven't fully wrapped our heads around is that the pregnant people themselves are going to be the targets, as you say, of surveillance and of sort of some of these vigilante schemes that are being put into effect in ways that really don't map onto the reality pre-row. Absolutely. The availability of medication even puts in play punishment for pregnant people. That's not happening now. And there's, I think, a decent amount should be said about the fact that the mainstream anti-abortion movement does not at this moment want to punish pregnant people. They've actually been fighting state legislators who want to do that, saying, no, no, don't do that. The people who do want to punish pregnant people, though, have more influence in the anti-abortion movement than they have historically. And I chalk much of that up to self-managed abortion because those people are saying essentially, OK, you don't want to punish pregnant people. You don't think you should. Granted. But what are you going to do when someone in Oklahoma 
gets abortion medication from a doctor in Europe and a pharmacist in India? Are you going to just let that go? And I think that's going to be a difficult answer for many people, Republican lawmakers and people in the anti-abortion movement. So I think it's not only the case that we're seeing surveillance of a kind that was impossible in the pre row era, although it's worth emphasizing that pregnant people were surveyed then too and forced to testify. But we're also, I think, going to see at least more of a push to punish pregnant people. I don't know if that's going to work yet. I think that's a conflict that is very unpredictable, but it's going to happen. The conversations about punishing pregnant people directly are not over. It's also worth emphasizing that the folks who are being defined as aiders and betters by many in the anti-abortion movement is a much larger group of people than we would have seen in the pre-Roe era. The National Right to Life Committee, for example, recently put out a model bill that would define lots of things as criminal aiding and abetting, um, abortion doulas, um, websites encouraging people to use abortion medications, you know, lots of things that come close to free speech or advocacy being defined as aiding or abetting. So the stakes of this are going to be high for a broader group of people, I think. Mary, you noted up top that Justice Kavanaugh did this kind of soothing concurrence. Justice Alito, much less soothing, as you said. Clarence Thomas, not soothing at all, certainly putting in his concurrence that the next things to go are Obergefell, are Lawrence v. Texas, uh, Griswold, uh, just the entire basket of substantive due process, unenumerated privacy rights, He's gunning for them. And I wonder how seriously you take that, or is that just Clarence Thomas speaking for Clarence Thomas? Well, it's it's a little bit of both, I think. Clarence Thomas, I think, is sort of saying the quiet part out loud. He's admitting that if the court is being intellectually consistent about what it means by its approach to constitutional rights, this very specific idea of tradition and history, there's no reason that any of those other cases would be safe. I think anyone reading the court's opinion, except for maybe the disclaimer about other rights, or maybe someone who read Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence in isolation, would probably take away that same conclusion. So I I think it's quite likely that there aren't the votes to move that way yet. But I think there probably are several, probably significant number of votes to move in that direction. And we know from past history that When the court issues disclaimers about what it's not going to do, it's usually because there's some serious thought that that's precisely what it's going to do. And often those disclaimers don't last for very long, right? They often have an expiration date. So I think back to marriage equality, when in Lawrence versus Texas, the court was talking about same-sex intimacy. There was essentially a disclaimer that this was not about marriage. Justice Scalia at the time said, you know, this is not about marriage only to the extent this opinion has nothing to do with logic or something I'm paraphrasing. And of course, Justice Scalia was right about his prediction that that decision would lead to a decision on marriage equality. And I think those predicting that this will eventually lead to other decisions, whether on marriage equality or birth control or something else, will be proven right too, although I doubt immediately, right? I think this is a time horizon question in terms of when Justice Thomas is able to get up to five in terms of reconsidering some of these other decisions. And I always ask you this when we talk, but I'm going to ask it again. For folks who are trying to figure out where best to put energies, who are feeling, I think that lethal combination of numb and hair on fire that you started with, what are you telling folks to do in terms of thinking through what the next couple of, as I said, days, months, years are going to look like and where to put energy and where to put time? I think one place, obviously, is the state level. This is something I think progressives have neglected for a long time. State constitutions matter. State judges matter. Governors matter. These are the people who are going to decide whether pregnant people get punished. These are the people who are going to decide if there's a state constitutional right to some kind of reproductive justice in your state. So pay attention to those sort of, frankly, prosecutors, sheriffs, you know, the people who will be enforcing these laws. So at the local level, a lot can change. And so this is an area, I think, really for people to focus their energies. And then I think the other thing just historically to remember is that 
the way this happened is because conservatives were smart and they were willing to play the long game. So ask yourself if you care about this and you're not happy today, are you willing to do the same? Right. And this isn't going to necessarily be quick, especially if you're talking about meaningful federal protection. It may not work very well very soon. And so I guess the question that I would ask is, how much does that bother you? How much do you care? How long are you willing to be in this? Because we know for conservatives, the answer was half a century. So the question, I think, is whether people who are progressive are willing to match that. We don't have a chance to talk about the fact that the Supreme Court has thrown out a 109-year-old New York uh, gun law mm -hmm. that has stood among Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, but they've tossed it out and are ready to turn the city into a shooting gallery. Mm -hmm. We haven't even haven't talked about that. Today, we haven't even talked about the fact that yesterday they brought prayer back into the schools. The fact that last week they said if a, if a county or city does not Mirandize you, you can't sue them about it. And of course, on Friday, they overturned both Casey and Roe v. Wade. What is your reaction to what you're hearing from the Supreme Court? Well, I think one of the things that we're seeing here is the Supreme Court is actively delegitimizing itself. And in and what we have... When, when you mean delegitimize, and I, I want to hear the rest of the answer, but yeah. I hear that word delegitimize, and certainly in Casey, they actually were worried that they would lose legitimacy in the court. They'd do irreparable damage to the court. Yes. What do you mean when you say delegitimize? So what that means is that the Supreme Court has a power, but its power is in whether its rulings are heeded and respected, and if so, how much and to what extent. And when we have the framing of, you know, the, the framing of our government, the presidency, Congress, the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court are supposed to be three co-equal branches, co-equal, none with supremacy over the other. And when any one of those branches overreaches its authority, it is the responsibility of the other two to check the overreach of, of, that, of that authority. The Supreme Court has engaged in the overreaching of its authority in denying the human and civil rights of any pregnant person or person that could become pregnant in the United States of America. They have engaged in overreach, and it is the responsibility of the president and Congress to put the Supreme Court in check because they have delegitimized themselves. What, what actions, you know, do you, would you like to see from your fellow lawmakers? Because the court's response to that might be, Alito specifically says, we turn this to the, the elected representatives of the people. Mm -hmm. um, that where they, he believes that that's where legitimacy, at least the, the, the issues of, of Roe, of, of abortion, should be returned to the people. What action would you like to see the Congress take? Well, I think a history really informs a lot, um, and it gives us lessons here, because this is not the first time that this has happened. Uh, in the 1800s, the Supreme Court was taken over uh, by the Confederate South and was starting to rule in ways that limited Abraham Lincoln, for example. In, in the Dred Scott ruling, they ruled that black Americans are not and can never be full citizens of the United States. And what did Abraham Lincoln do? He signed the Emancipation Proclamation. He ignored a, the gross overreach and abuse of power. During uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, attempt to, to restore the country during the Great Depression uh, with the Green New Deal, I mean, not the Green New Deal, the New Deal, the New Deal. Um, anyways, with the New Deal, um, what we saw was an overreach um, from the Supreme Court attempting to, to prevent us from passing these laws. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt threatened to expand the court. And in his adoption of that position, despite the fact that Congress didn't do it at that time, although Lincoln did, um, the, the fear of the court's power being minimized caused them to back off their overreach and abuse of power. I believe that President Biden should entertain expansion of the Supreme Court. I believe that... I believe that he should forcefully come out in ending the filibuster of the United States Senate. I believe that he should call on Congress to repeal the Hyde Amendment. And 
I also believe that Congress, we have the possi- we have uh, the possibility when we are strengthened by the repeal of the filibuster or even the change to, to a talking filibuster or a standing filibuster, in doing so, we can codify Roe, we can codify, and all of the other cases that the Supreme Court indicated that they would threaten, we can codify same-sex marriage, we can codify the right to contraception, we can codify interracial marriage, we can do it. But we can only do it. We can only do it if we're not fighting with one hand tied behind our, ba- our back, let alone two. And so I think that right now, we just need a fight. We need a fight. And we need to show and demonstrate to the American people that then when they vote to give Democrats power, we will use it to the fullest extent possible to defend everybody's civil, economic, and human rights. We've just heard clips today, starting with Burn It All Down, giving resources and action items. There Are No Girls on the Internet explained the importance of digital privacy when seeking reproductive health care. Boom Lawyered broke down the decision, the justices, and the long-standing comparison between abortion and slavery. This Is Hell looked at the criminalization of pregnancy that long predates this new ruling. Democracy Now! analyzed the new ruling as a continuation of Jim Crow. Amicus looked ahead at the potential cascade of anti-privacy rulings we may see from this court, and AOC was on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert explaining what Democrats need to do to check the Supreme Court's overreach. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Legal Eagle that did a deep-dive analysis into the nuts and bolts of the ruling. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. So now that you're informed and angry, here's one last thing you can do about it. Today, we're highlighting some excellent advice from lawyer, reproductive rights activist, and amazing co-host of Boom Lawyered, Imani Gandhi, who you heard in the show today discussing the slavery comparison, most prominently, also known on Twitter as at Angry Black Lady. Imani recently tweeted that in the wake of Roe's reversal, it's time to start paying attention to some political races that never get as much attention as they should, state judicial elections. According to Ballotpedia, in the upcoming midterms election, 87 state Supreme Court seats and 299 state intermediate appellate court seats are on the table. These state judges have serious power in our post-Roe world. This is how some state abortion trigger bans were blocked, at least temporarily, and the state level will be where critical cases of bodily autonomy and privacy will be fought going forward. Be aware that judicial elections are a little different than voting for your average political office. There are three kinds of state judicial elections. There are partisan elections, where the judges are elected by the people and the candidates' political party affiliations are listed on the ballot. There are nonpartisan elections, meaning, unsurprisingly, that the judges are elected by the people, but the candidate party affiliations are not listed on the ballot. And finally, there are retention elections, where people decide if judges who have been appointed by governors should remain for another term. It turns out a majority of states where there are bans or heavy restrictions on abortion have a significant number of judicial elections this fall. For instance, Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, Florida, and Ohio each have around 20 or more state intermediate appellate court judges and up to six state Supreme Court judges up for election. We've included resources in the show notes for you to easily get the lay of the land and some resources on how to dive into the candidates themselves and find out where they stand on the legal issues of our time. It can be a bit harder to find this info for judicial candidates, but it is very much worth the work. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. And also, it appears that I have finally caught COVID. I haven't tested positive yet, but it seems extremely likely that uh, that that is what is happening. So I'm in the very early stages 
and I'm going to take it easy and see how things go. So the production schedule of the show may be interrupted by that. I'm sure you understand. As always, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, if I do say so myself. In addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, interesting articles, whatever you like. There's already a bunch of fun and interesting people chatting in there. Links are in the show notes to access the community. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.